Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. you, if you have a Bible, to open up to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. This morning we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12, but really then focusing in on verses 8 through 12. But I just want to give us a, a running start here. So Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. Again, if you're visiting with us, uh, our typical mode of operation is to preach expositionally through books of the Bible. Advent's a little bit of a different season for us. Uh, We're still trying to preach expositionally, uh, but we've been kind of picking our spots in the book of Genesis and trying to see Jesus in Genesis over the last few weeks. So here we go. Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen. O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch." Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And then here's our focus. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. 
So won't you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it really does intend purpose to show us the glory of Christ. We pray this morning that as we sit in your word, that you would cause our hearts to sit under it. May Christ be exalted as the King of kings that he is. And may he have the allegiance of every soul that has come through the doors this morning. We ask this for your glory and for our happiness in him. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in the Avengers movie, like the, the, the one where they come together uh, for the first time, the battle in New York uh, actually begins in Stuttgart, Germany, when Loki, the god of mischief and basically everything else unholy and unrighteous, incites a panic in the city square. Uh, taking great delight in the people's fear, he commands them in stroking his ego to bow and to fall beneath him, and they all do this. They all bow except one elderly man, right? This man begins to go down, but then he rises and forfeiting his life to the cost of rising, he stands against this god of mischief. In the scene, Loki asserts that people were made to be ruled, Terrans, earth people, were made to be ruled, that in the end we will all kneel. And this is where the one man of conviction then rises, not to say that we won't kneel, but that if we will kneel, we won't be kneeling to a man like Loki. No, but in reality, we will all be bowing. We will all be kneeling before one named Jesus. It is true, despite modern fantasies, that we are governed creatures. We're not as free as we tend to think. Uh, the Bible is quite clear on this. Uh, why must Jesus set us free, John chapter 8, if we're not, you know, enslaved to something? And once he's freed us, what then? Are we to go our own way? Are we free to go our own way? Are we free to think that he's broken sin's power in our lives without a mind to making his own disciples? Of course not, right? In the end we will all kneel. We will all bow before the King of Kings. The question is not whether we will or will not kneel. The question is whether or not we will do that with joyful hearts or with lamentable ones. Will we rejoice in His grace when we see Him face to face? Or will we weep as we face His justice against our sins? Or... I could ask us this, to what or to whom do you bow today? What rules your heart today? What governs your life today? What stresses you out? It's a good way to figure out what rules your heart today. What legislates, what governs, what regulates, what captivates your affections and your attitudes and your thoughts and your plans and your words and your deeds? Right? Do you march 
by the drumbeat of the world? Do you march by the, the tyranny of what's popular or what's comfortable or what's immediate or tempting, what seems profitable? Or do you live this life as a faithful disciple of Jesus, the King of Kings? If you're a Christian this morning, you do realize, don't you, that you have not only a Savior, but a Lord and King. And that he's authored a word for us to love and to obey and to love and obey it in the sure hope of his own ministry to us, his own success. Friends, the scepter shall not depart from the Lion of Judah, that's what it says in our text, so that the very best a soul can know is to love living faithfully at the regal feet of Christ. By His grace, that is our glory. And that is the push of our text this morning. So, let's come to our text by first considering the fighting king of Judah and his victory. One thing to always keep in front of us is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and that that was not lost on this salvation-critical family. So, uh, whether you've been with us recently or not over the last few weeks, it's good for us to keep the biblical storyline of redemption intact. So you recall from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that before the fall ever happened, the gospel was depicted for us at the apex of creation in the marriage of Adam and Eve. And that then when all was lost and we were at our wit's end about how to regain what we had lost, the gospel was then promised in the heat of the fall, by God himself. Again, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that promise of it, that promise of the gospel in particular, is never forgotten throughout the course of the Bible. Genesis 3.15, and the Christ that it preaches becomes really the paradigm of redemptive hope and expectation for the whole Bible. Maybe that's new for you. Maybe you haven't understood that the Bible is one big story. Genesis 3.15 is a really important verse. Go read it, familiarize yourself with it, let it govern the whole text of Scripture. That promise in Genesis 3.15 does not get left behind in Eden. It travels out of Eden in the hearts of Adam and Eve, who it would seem began the habit of passing it down to their children so that though the centuries pass, we find this promise cropping up again and again and again in a certain family circle. Now, we don't know where all this promise might have gone and survived all over the world, but we do know that by God's grace, the Christ promised in Genesis 3.15 was a Christ present in the lives of Noah and then Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and now Judah. So, what I want us to see is that as it relates to the Christ, there's been a great narrowing in Genesis from Adam, the father of all humanity, to Jacob, the father of a single family, and to one of his sons especially, namely Judah. And that is for the benefit of the whole world. If the story of redemption stayed broad and vague, as some might prefer it did, finding the Christ with any assurance would have been like searching for a very specific, though obscure, needle in a global haystack. If that were the case, the second Adam might have been any man except for the first Adam. Okay? So, God has taken great pains 
as it were, to single Christ out for us. With great skill, that is what the Bible does. Starting in Genesis, it points us straight to the man, Christ Jesus. It narrows the search for us. It takes Genesis 3.15 and says, the Christ promised there will have his advent through Abraham, then Isaac, not Ishmael, then Jacob, not Esau, now Judah, not, as we might think, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, or Joseph. And so do our verse 8. These are Jacob's last words. If I had kept on reading to the end of the chapter, you would see that Jacob dies by the end of it. So at the center of his dying words, in blessing Judah, Jacob prophesies about Christ. And it's not what we'd expect. Again, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his invincible tapestry to weave. And so the blessing of bearing the Christ is not Reuben's. He's the firstborn. He's preeminent in power. That's what we would expect. But he's not preeminent in this. And neither are the secondborn or the thirdborn. And even more unexpectedly, here we are. We're at the pinnacle of the Joseph story, aren't we? Genesis 49, we're at the pinnacle of the the Joseph story, but however Joseph may prefigure Christ throughout his story, Christ is not going to come through Joseph. As one put it, read carefully, Joseph is really just the supporting actor to his own story. Of course, God's always the main character, but even still, it's Judah who takes center stage, and not because he was more righteous than all the rest of his brothers. No, you, you go read the book of Genesis, you're going to find that Judah might have been more rotten than all of his brothers. Just recall the episode involving the cell of Joseph. Judah's the one who's like looking for profit at the blood of his brother. <laughs> or remember the abuse of Tamar? Okay. So the point then is this, as we come to the blessing that Jacob is laying on Joseph. God is so very merciful to sinners. And not just in that he generically gives us more than we could ever merit, but that even in Genesis, it seems, he's saving specific souls. In the flow of Genesis, though we don't have time to trace it, it seems Judah has been recently humbled by the whole Tamar thing and converted. Go read Genesis 44. So now, grace upon that grace, he and his family tree will produce the Christ that was promised in Genesis 3.15. You see in our verse 8, he will have his brother's praise. Why? Because his, as it says there, his hand shall be on the what? The neck of his enemies. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis 3.15, that might sound like an echo or an illusion of Genesis 3.15. When in the hearing of a then fallen humanity, God told the serpent, he promised the serpent this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, your head or neck area, right? Your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
So this right here, that he's going to have his hand on the neck of his enemies, is shorthand for Genesis 3.15. The serpent crushing Christ will come by Judah. And is that not significant for us? Do you remember what all that entailed? Wasn't it that Christ would win salvation by losing his life for us? That you and I would be blessed by God because he became a curse for us on the cross? That by his wounds, you and I would be healed, most importantly in our souls? That by his death on the cross, he would crush the devil? That there in Genesis 3.15 was the promise of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world? That's why his his brothers will praise him. From Judah will come this eternal savior of a sinful world. Are you a sibling of Christ? Have you been born again? Have you been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been adopted by grace, into the family of God. Man, I hope so. Nothing, literally nothing, is more important than that. One thing I can tell you, friend, is you will not be able to uh, abide an enemy of Christ in any way that will be pleasurable for you in the end. Yes, it is true that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but verse 9, He is no less the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So let's be careful as Christians that we don't live in a bubble where Christ can only save and never judge. Christ can only be gentle and gracious, but never just and ravenous. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia, Uh, Susan learns that Aslan is not a man. He's a lion. And she admits then to being nervous about meeting him because he's a lion. And so she asks Mr. Beaver, is, is Aslan safe? To which he responds, quote, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. He's the Lion, the great lion, but he's good, (laughs) but he's good. He's the king, I tell you, and that's the truth. Jesus does save, but he is not safe. What I mean is, if you trust him as the lamb of God, he will no doubt be for you the lion of the tribe of Judah. Destroy sin, Satan, death, hell, all those things for you. But if you will not trust him as that, he will inevitably be the lion against you. He saves, but he is not safe. Christ would save us by being condemned in our place, but he will also judge all who despise and reject so great a salvation. Jacob's warning is clear enough here. He's crouched as a lion. Who dares rouse him? Who dares rouse him? 
well, in, in one respect, I think we can say, very sadly, many people would dare to rouse him. And how dangerous. Right? Understand the imagery here. It's of a preparedness, it's crouching, a preparedness to pounce upon the prey. Being those who, in the midst of their rebellion, sit ignorantly by the tall grass, assuring themselves, all shall be well with my soul, whilst the lion of God is crouched to attack, not just a foot away. And nothing, nothing but his own patience stays him in the tall grass for today. As it must, and as Paul will say in Romans, let his long-suffering kindness lead you to repentance today. Seek his mercy. The only way to avoid being torn by his justice forever is to bow your heart right now to his eternal grace. He is the fighting king of Judah, and he's won the bout. He's won the great battle. He's gained the victory over Satan and sin and death and hell and all who live and die as his enemies. Why, why would one dare rouse him when they can run to him? And why would we, why would you and I, if you're a Christian this morning, why would you and I, knowing these things, not run all the more urgently to those who cannot see beyond themselves to the lion that's in the tall grass. To those who are in eternal danger because of their sins. God help us to be a church family like this nuclear one in our text who keeps the gospel front and center from one generation to the next. This church has existed for 161 years because someone has been passing down the gospel. Let's be a part of that. The serpent crusher has come and he's won and his name is Jesus. But now this fighting king is also by his victory the everlasting king of Judah. You see Jacob says in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so, what we have here is no ordinary king or kingdom. Well, it's not even David or, or Solomon. David and Solomon look as their kingdoms were falling to a king and a kingdom that had no end. That's established for them before they ever exist, right here in Genesis 49. They, and oh how we constantly need to hear this, are not the goal. Christ is. Christ is. Their kingdoms, great as they were, were but revelatory vapors compared to the everlasting kingdom of Christ. Where sin and men could bring them down in a moment, there is no stopping, no overcoming, no ending the rule and reign of Jesus. Jesus has stopped, overcome, ended every destroyer by dying and then rising from the dead. Christ lives now, we're told in Hebrews, by the power of an indestructible life. 
once the stone was rolled away, the cornerstone was officially laid. And upon it, he received anew what was always his, the authority of the Almighty. All authority in heaven and earth, he says. So, if you're one of his, you need not fear anything that's threatening. You need not fear anything that's frightening. Sin has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. Satan has lost his dominion. So that Jesus can say in Matthew, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right, So let the kingdoms totter and the peoples do their worst. There is no reality in which anyone but Jesus comes out on top. If you happen to be one of those that watches the news, let's make sure we read the Bible with it. Because for all the frightful things in our world, there is a great, great calm at the throne of God where Jesus is presiding over the affairs of men. The whole earth is the footstool of King Jesus right now. I mean, all authority is all authority, isn't it? The question is, do we believe that he is the king of kings? Where is our trust? Where is our hope? Where is our confidence? Or, how about this? Where is our obedience? Don't miss a couple of things in verse 10. One, that the kingdom Christ establishes is global, not tribal. To him shall be the obedience of Israel. No, the peoples. Global, not tribal. And two, it's spiritual but tangible. Spiritual but tangible. To him will be the obedience of the peoples. Jacob says Judah will preside over the kingdom of God until Jesus comes to take what's his. And then to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What the second Adam came to do was not restricted to ethnic Israel, neither was it primarily socio-political. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Period. The Son left the Father, Genesis 2.24, to hold fast to a global bride. Jesus was given to regenerate and create a new humanity for God out of Adam's fallen race, Genesis 3.15. And do you know, do you know what will summarily characterize us, what will prove us to be heirs of grace that are akin to the king of glory? Four words. Grateful obedience to Jesus. Dear ones, See the reversal of the fall in this. Our ruin was brought about through the one man's disobedience. By it, we died. 
and became disciples of the devil, Ephesians 2, to do his anti-word will. But that's not the end of the story. As by Adam's disobedience we all fell, so by Christ's obedience even to death on a cross, anyone may now rise and live to God a justified person. It has to be stressed. This has to be stressed because I fear it is so little said today. Jesus died not just to make us right with God, but to make us practically righteous. To make us really obedient people to God. He didn't just save us from the penalty of sin. He also saved us, set us free from the power of sin. You did not have that power as an unbelieving person. You have it now as a Christian. You can say no to sin and yes to the Word of God. In fact, that should be all your desire. When Jesus saves a person, He will make them like Him over time. It's called sanctification. Do we understand this? Would it be surprising to hear that as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that the actual goal of salvation is a person's conformity to Christ. That it's putting off the old man, Adam, and putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Beloved, listen, if our fall was through and into disobedience, what will the great mark of redemption, resurrection, and recreation be? Grateful obedience to Christ. And it's no coincidence then that our king is also named the Word of God. Word in flesh appearing. So listen. You should be skeptical of any so-called Christianity that plays loose and fast with conformity to Jesus Christ. Again, in addition to a Savior, we have a King who set us free from sin to reflect Him in the world. And hear this now. I want you to hear this. Nothing, nothing will be more dignifying, more free, more contenting, more lovely, more humane, more divine, more useful than a life aimed at living on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How do we know that? Jesus. He lived that life. And he was all those things. The most beautiful life that was ever lived. Costly, but beautiful. Heavenly. It's not obedience to Christ that makes us miserable, friends. It's sin. It's disobedience that makes us miserable. Which of those more or less characterizes our lives today? Is it obvious to others 
that we are disciples of Jesus. That our King is not of this world, and neither are we any longer. Are we gladly governed by the Word of God? Is that in our evangelism? Because it's in the Great Commission, isn't it? The Great Commission is not go and make hasty decisions for Christ. It is go and make word-centered disciples. Acknowledging the cost that magnifies what He's done for us and what He is therefore worth to us. If you want to know you really belong to an eternal kingdom, you will love living faithfully, not at the feet of one's government, not at the feet of one's culture, not at the feet of one's traditions or opinions, but at the feet of Christ. Your heart's allegiance will not be to any so-called Loki. You'll stand with Jesus, who was crucified for you. So we've considered the fighting king of Judah and his victory as the everlasting king of Judah with his subjects. Last bit here, verses 11 and 12, we want to consider him as the harvesting king of Judah in view of his sovereignty. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. There's Jacob's last lines for Judah. He says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. So the scene here depicts a vineyard, and not a poor vineyard, but a prosperous vineyard. So prosperous, in fact, he doesn't hesitate to use wine for washing his clothes. Forget water, the Merlot is gushing. Okay? This humble king, note the donkeys, has a vineyard, think John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, that's so absolutely efficient, its produce is as abundant as water in the rainy seasons. Dear ones, I want you to hear this, Christ will have the vineyard for which he died. Can you sense the good news in that? This is prophetic. It will come to pass and is already coming to pass. His feet are among us. His eyes are on us to produce the full lot of abiding fruit that He bought with His own blood. There is no chance that His saving work will turn out impotent. Do you remember how Jesus urges us to pray about the harvest? Or better, to whom? Pray, he says, to the Lord of the harvest. The Lord of the harvest. Whatever you and I contribute to it, he's the Lord of it. He's the one who makes it grow. He's the one who makes it overflow. He's the one who's in control. He's the Lord. Or just think on Revelation chapter 5 that we read at the beginning of our time together. There's the scroll of redemptive history. <laughs> and no one, anywhere, no creature, is able to 
open that thing up, tackle it, achieve it, finish it, and then bring it to pass. And so they see all this, no one's able to do it, and everyone's crying really, really loudly. Because no one is worthy to save. No one's able to bring it about. And then, into those tears, that hopelessness, one speaks these words. Weep no more. (laughs) Behold, here it is, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. There you go. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. He can do it. Again, the point as Revelation 5 goes on to reveal is that all of history and the redeeming purpose of God and all its parts in particular falls out at the will of this lion king who was slain the Lamb of God. Listen to this description. Quote, He is uniquely trained and highly motivated. A specialist without equal immune to any countermeasures. There is no secret he cannot extract, no security he cannot breach, no person he cannot become. He is the living manifestation of destiny, and he has made you his mission. What CIA director Alan Hunley said of Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible 5 is only more or less truly true of Jesus. He alone is worthy and able to wield the sovereignty of the Christ of God. Is that the Christ we know? Is that the Jesus we trust? One to whom, not just people, but one to whom all of history bows. One who owns total control, whose purpose and activity cannot be thwarted. Dear ones, I don't know of a greater comfort for us, his branches, his reeds, his co-laborers, than this truth. As one of his branches, do you wrestle with doubts over the produce of your life? Do you, in general, believe life situations to be more or less sovereign over the output of your life for Jesus? Do you ever think, you know, I'm just not meant to gush. I'm just not meant to gush, to overflow with the grace and truth of Christ. Maybe I'm just destined to be a plot of land that's dry and deserted, and I'll just go to heaven. Or, as one of his reeds, perhaps, perhaps, you've been deeply bruised. Has the thought crossed your mind, contrary to the promise in Isaiah 42, that He will actually let you break completely. Or that at least if He could help it, He wouldn't, but the forces beating against you are just too strong, even for Him. He's not able to to bind you up. He's not able to make you pliable. He's not able to make you stand for Him. Or, as one of His co-laborers, you just ever wanted to give up? Toss up your hands in defeat and despair? You've labored in this field. You've planted and watered and planted and watered and planted and watered. (laughs) And you look to Him for growth. But all you see in a given moment is loss. 
Maybe you think, he is worthy, but is all this pain? Is the sorrow full of joy ever going to be more joy than sorrow? Oh Lord, will the harvest ever be truly great this side of heaven? Well, in answer to all that, hear God who cannot lie. King Jesus has and oversees a vineyard that will overtake the world, that will outproduce our greatest dreams for his ministry, that will, in the end, satisfy our deepest longings for his glory. He will wash his garments, not in water, but in wine. You will be held together to bear much fruit in the Christian life and ministry. Jesus has died for it. Jesus lives for it. Jesus himself will see to it. He is the fighting, everlasting, harvesting king of Judah. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here, and we hope that you've heard the word of God this Christmas morning. What we celebrate is nothing short of the truth, that God was made lowest in Christ, that he might raise up lowly sinners to be with him in heaven. The risen king of glory was crucified to win eternal salvation. So while judgment conquering mercy is held out to you, the call to you this morning is to take it. Is to take that. Is to turn away from your sins. Is to trust in Jesus. Is to bow your heart before Him right now. You do that, He will show you His heart to save you and make you His own. You need to understand that we will all bow before the King of Kings. So our prayer for you this morning is that you'll do that right now with joy. Beloved, as a worshipful prelude to that day, that great day, I'll just ask us, are we standing out in the world by kneeling first and foremost always at the feet of Jesus? As we sit on Christmas and head into a new year, I think it's worth the ask, is it obvious that Christ is our King? God knows that Jesus is worthy of our lives, but do our hearts know that? To whom do we bow day in and day out? Let's, let's try to live so that that's not a question we need to ask. Let's make it clear that we belong to the everlasting kingdom of this sovereign lion king of Judah. Let's make it clear that we're numbered among the redeemed of the Lord Jesus by His great grace. The scepter shall not depart from Jesus, nor the ruler's staff from between His feet. And I'll just tell you, the best thing for your soul is to follow suit. Never depart from Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for all the things that You have given to us to magnify Your Son. I pray that He would be magnified in our hearts right now. And as we move to sing joy to the world, that our hearts really would be filled with joy in Jesus. We love You, our King and pray that you would be glorified in our hearts and in our lives and in this church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.